Hi, I'm Dr. Randy Ross, and this is Relationomics, where we talk about everything related to life, business, and relationships. And today, we're going to have the privilege of talking to Peter Bork. Peter is uh, the founder of Better Wave Strategies. He is a sales guru. He helps encourage and equip and train organizations to capture those deals they can't afford to lose. And we're going to learn a lot about uh, his book, Unselling talk about uh, the sales process. But in addition to that, he also has two passions, and that's helping people in career transition and also helping people build better marriages. And we'll spend quite a bit of time talking about that today as well. So glad you're here. Thanks for joining us. And let's grow together. Well, Peter, man, great to have you here today. I've been looking forward to this. Uh, there are a lot of rabbits I want to chase with you. And so <laughs> I'm anxious to dive right in. But I got to tell you before we get started, you're, you're one of my all-time favorite heroes. And there are a number of reasons for that, truly. But probably one of the biggest reasons for that is because I love your goatee. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm jealous. Mine's yeah. not quite as, as, well, we're as tracking full along the same. as yours. <laughs> yeah. uh, but no, in all seriousness, uh, we've known each other for several years and I've watched you um, uh, from a distance and I've watched you up close too working with clients, having a profound impact, uh, and then also following your passions. Uh, a couple of things I want to talk to you about there as well today. But for those who may not know much about your background, um, you are the founder of Better Wave Strategies, which is a, a professional service group. You're in the consulting realm and you help counsel and coach and equip and encourage organizations uh, who have complex sales that they cannot afford to lose. Have I stated that fairly well? A, you nailed it. In fact, you, you got a job if you want one. <laughs> I can be your agent. <laughs> yeah, you can, you can help promote this business. But you, no, you nailed it exactly right. I'm all about growth. I'm, I've got a center of gravity because of my background in the consulting world. So I get to work with some, some organizations that have very large, very strategic deals that um, they can't afford to come in second. Yeah. And, and so I get to make my living helping them figure out how to do that well. Well, you've also written a book called Unselling, which I love, and anybody who's in sales, it is a must read because it sort of uh, turns a lot of sales approaches on its head. Um, the title itself sort of speaks to that. But tell me about the essence of unselling. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it is a provocative title for, for good reason. I love kind of the provocation of things, but, but I guess the, the quick story is I came from large, well-respected selling organizations. IBM, Verizon are, are two kind of recognizable names. In mid-1990s, I joined Accenture. And this is a $4 billion professional services firm at the time, growing at a pretty good pace. Um, I, I get in this, this great job, uh, heading up business development for the firm. And, and I noticed right away that selling in a consulting firm is entirely different than coming from these world-class sales organizations. Hmm. And, and you start saying, well, what's the difference? They're, they're really, really bright, competent people who are problem solvers. They're truth tellers. And, and they don't have a selling bone in their body, hmm. right? Because that's not what they do. They aren't slick. They aren't slimy. They, they aren't any of those things. They, they, they go visit a client. The client says, here's the problem I'm having. They say, okay, I get it. I, I need some more information, but I think we can solve that problem. But I'm going to tell you the truth. And, um, and they're able 
to call the baby ugly, right? When the baby needs to be called Which ugly. Which is a hard thing to do that sometimes. It is, it is. And, but, it, but it's all about trust. It's mm -hmm. all about building relationships, something you know a lot about. And, and I've actually come to believe that you can build stronger, longer-term relationships with people in that way if you have both the competency and, and I always say people are willing to let you lead them and, and really help them understand how to solve a problem with two caveats. One is that they have to believe you're competent, okay. right? Whatever the topic is. Sure. And the second is they, they need to have confidence that your primary goal and your primary interest is their success, not yours. Right. And as soon as you meet those two conditions, it's amazing what clients will allow you to do and to, and to help them and to be led down this journey to solve these problems. And, and that's really the premise of unselling is uh, it, it couldn't be much simpler. I think you had a, a pretty fascinating experience that kind of was served as a catalyst to throw you into this realm. You were at a retail store yeah. and someone was trying to sell you something. Yeah, my favorite, my favorite way to make this come to life for anybody is you, you walk into a reasonable clothing store, right? Not Marshalls, not Kohl's. But a, but a reasonable you know, clothing store. And, and you first thing that happens is somebody runs over to you and they say, what, may I help you? And every single time, human behavior, what do we say? I'm good. No, just looking, right? Everybody says the same words, just looking. And then they get four steps away. And, and what do we do? We hail them again. Oh, you know, I, I could use your help to find out where the tan shirts are, the yellow ties or whatever it may be. And that's that, it, it, can you think of a, of a less onerous selling approach than may I help you? Hmm. And yet, when we feel like we're being approached. People reject that. We reject that. And, and that was between that and the Accenture kind of problem solving consultant um, approach, the light bulb goes on that says, maybe there's a different way to communicate. Yeah how to build trust, how to build relationship, and, and how to gain the confidence of the customer. Well, you, you talk a lot to sales leaders and sales organizations, and you help organizations literally uh, map out a plan to secure million-dollar sales. But you talk about this thin line between winning the sale and just losing it entirely. It's a very thin line. What do you mean by that? Well, not only is it thin or narrow, it, it's also not well understood. And maybe the benefit I've had, we started in uh, 24 years ago, we institutionalized a process at Accenture to conduct third-party research on why we won and lost really large, really strategic deals. And the reason we hired a third party is we figured out that the clients won't tell us the truth. No. When a sales team asks a customer, why did we win or lose? Invariably, the answer is the same, price. And, and you know that's not in, at least entirely true. So we, we hired a firm out of Chicago and, and the insights we got from that was unbelievable. So, so literally for the last 20 years that I've been doing this, this kind of work, I've had that as part of the, the stool, one of the legs to the stool of my business to, do, to go conduct face-to-face, -face, not telephone, face-to-face. -face. Let me talk to three or four of the key executives that were instrumental in the decision as an independent third party 
to understand the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And it's amazing what they'll tell me that they won't tell the team. And it's from that experience, Randy, that, that I've tried to share then with many, many other organizations, large and medium mostly, um, what are those insights? What are the, the, the things that you wouldn't understand otherwise to be able to approach then new opportunities in a more effective way? Okay, so here's the deal. <clears throat> this is something that I'd love to dive into. And, and we're gonna have you back to unpack this in a different conversation. But, but just give me a high-flying 30,000-foot overview because I really want to get to some passion points that I know that are pressing for you. But, but give me a 30,000-foot view. What did you learn through that whole process? I, I'll give you a couple of examples. One is the average organization tends to rely on the solution to win. Hmm. And, and, the, and it, the logic goes like this. I've got a really good product or solution. The client is reasonably intelligent. All I've really got to do is convince them that I've got the best solution. And the, and the fallacy of that is the best solution loses most of the time. Really? Absolutely. There's a guy named Jim Dickey. He has a, a firm called CSO Insights. He studies this for a living. And, and what he'll tell you is more than 50% of the time, the client chooses something less than the best solution. Wow, tell me why. Because it's relationship, because it's risk, because it's, again, we talked about trust, because they're primarily focused on time frame to, in, to implement. And that's, that's why until you understand what the individual decision makers really care about, and it, and it isn't always the business concern, right? Interesting. There's an element of the business and professional but there's a huge element of the personal. Mm -hmm. Believe it or not, multi-million dollar decisions are being made by really good, competent buyers on the basis of what's in it for me. Okay, so how do you get to the heart of that? How do you figure that out? You, you better spend a lot of time, and it's, it's part of the buying and selling process, and, and one of the things that's often misunderstood or missed is in the early part of the process, if you can't get access to the right people, if you can't really understand what's motivating them on this decision, if you can't even influence some of the questions they're asking. I always, I always pose to, to groups that I work with, when is the worst time for the client to figure out that they didn't have all the right questions and they mm. didn't know what criteria to use and they didn't realize that the solution that they picked doesn't provide some key function that, that's really, really critical the worst time is after they've already signed the contract and committed the funds and everything else. Of course. So, so one of the obligations I think the, the organizations I work with have is we've got to do a better job on the front end to make sure that there are no surprises. And that takes time and it takes access and it takes influence and it takes trust. But it also takes some courage, does it not? A lot of courage. Courage. I, I always kind of come back to two, two key C words, courage and confidence. Uh-huh. And, and, and of course, competence doesn't hurt either. But, but, you, but, but that, you're exactly right, Randy. Courage is key. Well, see, it's interesting because a lot of salespeople, in my opinion, get excited when they just get the next appointment. Absolutely. In other words, they, they string out the conversation and they never really bring anything substantive to the table that might challenge the thinking for fear that I, it may end this whole process and it'll be over. And so they're content just to get another call and another call and another call and another call. And that process can go on indefinitely when in reality, they may never be able to close that deal because right. they didn't ask the right questions up front. Right, and or 
they, they were the, what I call affectionately or disaffectionately, the, the deferential salesperson or the subservient salesperson. And, and that relationship looks like this, right? The client says jump and, and we say how high, right? And you go through that entire process being mostly reactive and just celebrating that they're giving us time and they're asking us questions and permitting us to submit a proposal when in reality the most effective people in these larger complex sales are the, because we're subject matter experts on whatever it is we do, you're creating this relationship, not this relationship. And it's collaborative and it's, mm -hmm. and it's business person to business person. And it's, we're, we're not, when they say jump, we don't say how high. We, in the South, we say sure, right? That's kind of our normal first response. Sure, but why? I mean, I'm happy to jump, but tell me why you want me to, why you want to take that step? Because as I've worked with others, there, there may be better ways to approach that. Well, I, in reading on selling, I think one of the main points you make is from day one, from the first encounter, the first meeting, bring something of value to the table. There you go. So make sure that you establish yourself as being competent, but, but also capable and courageous enough to ask the hard questions. You bet. Like, are you the decision maker? You know, do you have a budget for this? Yeah, and, and, and get to the heart of those. Better to get a quick no. Absolutely. So you can go on and move to other things than to string out a long maybe. Yeah, and the only way you're gonna get the truth is is you build this rapport, you build this relationship again that says, you know, before I jump through hoops to convince you I've got the greatest thing since sliced bread, can we maybe first start with just a, a, a good rational business discussion as to what you're trying to accomplish? And, and if I'm not a good fit, I mean, unselling, the unselling statement is, there's a reasonable chance, Randy. We may not match. That we're not going to be a good fit. And, I, and what I want to do is make sure I understand what you're trying to get accomplished enough to at least point you in the right direction. And I love that. I love that because if we're not a good match, I can move on. You bet. And look for other people and or other organizations it. that are a better match. That's and that's it. how you build a strong business. And I yeah. love this. Man, we could, we could stay here all day <laughs> and play <laughs> in this sandbox. Yeah. <laughs> but, but there are two areas that I really want to get to. Uh, I want to talk about your um, your ability and your your commitment to help people in career transition. You've okay. been doing that for 16 years. I know that every Monday morning early you have a group of goodness. I mean, it ranges from 50 to 200 leaders who come together to seek encouragement and counsel and to be able to to network or net weave, as mm -hmm. our friend Bob Littell calls it, net weave together. Um, talk to me about that, how that gets started, and why is it such a hot spot for you? Well, appreciate you asking. Um, C3G is the, is the name of the career networking organization. Uh, we have been doing this a long time. We've, we're approaching 12,000 people now. Who now, have been C3G, what does it stand for? Christ-Centered Career Groups. Got it. Okay, so it's, and it basically says, how do you take a small group philosophy that so many organizations have kind of adopted, churches and otherwise, right. and how do you apply that to a season in, in people's lives where they're in career transition that tends to be pretty trying, pretty stressful, and, and of course the world says you better be good at networking if you're gonna be able to find a job. The problem is 60% of the human population is not extroverted. Right. is not comfortable really in networking. They, they hear the words, but they'd rather park themselves in their basement and check Monster and Career Builder and, 
and LinkedIn and you know whatever tool you can find, and and trust that if they lob enough resumes out electronically, that poof a miracle is going to happen and and some employer is going to find me and it's going to be great, and then you quickly find out that job search is a, a trying time. It's a it's a difficult process and all the all the tools have changed and the game has changed and hey I've never had to look for a job or every time I've looked for one it's only taken me a few weeks and and in today's world everything is kind of adjusted so we started this concept I started it selfishly it's another one of those examples I've told you before Randy uh, I think a lot of times the the charitable noble things we get involved with kind of start with our own mess mm. well well here's a great example right I I was unemployed, in transition, trying to figure out what to do 16 years ago. I, I meet a group of guys who were also unemployed and I said, hey, I got an idea. I, I, I think this notion has been birthed in my brain. Can we go have a cup of coffee? And they were dumb enough to say yes. <laughs> and so we go to a Seattle's Best Coffee Shop and I said, here's the premise. We're all trying to look for a job. You probably know 500 people in your network and he knows 500 and he knows 500. I may know 500 or 450 or I know some number. Well, we can either fly solo, right? And, and that might work. Or we can figure out how to work together on behalf of each other and encourage each other and help each other and challenge each other and introduce each other to our respective networks and, and just figure out how we can be better together than any one of us is alone. And you talked about Bob Littell, net weaving. The whole premise of net weaving is seek first to serve the other person and it will come back in kind, right? And, and so that's what we birthed. Um, it's been going strong. We, we get about 100 people every Monday morning. Uh, we started with five in 2009 at kind of the height of the downturn uh, in the economy. You know the Great Recession, right. as I guess it's commonly called to now. Right. Um, we probably had 450 people in the room, and so I hope we don't get back to there anytime soon. But um, the the basic premise, Randy, is still the same, mm. which is um, instead of flying solo, why not kind of team and partner with a bunch of other people who um, care and are really competent and really well connected and figure out how we can all get back to work faster in the process. I love that. Yeah, I'm a big believer in the fact that most people are only two introductions away from success. That's right. If we can just connect the people in our world, the right people, align them and turn them loose, the great things can happen. Agree. So Agree. In fact, what was the old saying? Kevin Bacon, right? Six yeah. degrees of separation. The cool thing is the technology in today's world and LinkedIn specifically, it's no longer six degrees of separation. I mean, That's right. I mean, you and I could sit here and you tell me what executive you want to get to. And if we had five folks, right? Somebody's connected. That, that within two degrees for sure. And probably one. Right. And that's, that's the coolest thing about today's world. Um, and, and today's relationships. Which gets back to business powered by relationships. That's right. It's all about, not just about who you know, but how deeply do you know. That's right. And who are you connected to. And, and how willing are you, you know, I, I think there's one of the premises I say at C3G most Mondays is you, you came into this room, if this is your first time here, 
with your head down, charging to a table, saying, I wonder who can help me find a job. Right. right. right? Which is the normal kind of human mentality. Right. I, I, do me a favor. Next Monday when you come in, do it differently. Come in the room and say to yourself, I wonder who I can serve exactly today. And, and when a hundred some odd people, or we've probably got 500 people actively involved at any point in time, when 500 people have that mentality, Randy, it is amazing what happens in the process. Great things can happen. You got it. I love it, love it. All right, so that's career transition. And there's, again, there's a lot of things we could talk about there, but here's where I wanna to park today. Okay. Because I know that you have a passion that burns bright to help build better marriages. Now, your focus has been mostly on businessmen, men in the marketplace who are, they're busy, they're building their careers, they're building their businesses, they've got family commitments and kids and all kinds of you know activities outside the home, but a lot of times they're struggling in their most important relationship, which is marriage. And so I know that you have consistently uh, not only developed curriculum, but you also lead men's groups not that the principles aren't for women, but you specifically want to talk to the guys. Yeah. You, you want to call them out and encourage them. And so you've been doing this for how many years? Uh, about seven years now. All right, so today what I want to talk about is that most important relationship, the marriage relationship, because we used to say that your professional life and your personal life were two yeah. totally separate things yeah. and you need to keep them bifurcated. Never right? two that never sell the two meat. Right? Yeah, that's right. But we're we're holistic creatures and we know that's not possible because if things aren't good at home, you're gonna carry it to work. And if things aren't good at work, you're gonna bring it home. You bet. And and marriage is the single most important relationship that any of us have on this planet. So here's my question. Why is marriage so hard? <laughs> I, I wish I could answer that easily, but, I, but it, is, it is a great question. It's, it's the right question. It's actually when we get these groups of men together <clears throat> in these workshops that I've, that I've been running for a, a few years, um, it's, it's the first topic we, we cover because it's the felt need for the average guy who comes and participates. And by the way, this isn't for just broken marriages. This is to, to help make good marriages great and to make mediocre marriages good and right there's everybody's on a different continuum but maybe the best way to answer that Randy is I feel obligated to confess maybe a quick uh, background on how in the world I ended up into this space because you know it isn't because I'm, I'm an expert it isn't because I'm a I'm a pastor or a counselor or a, you know, whatever it might know. Any, I've got no professional certification. Yeah, but you're, but you're in the trenches. Yeah, you've had experiences and you've talked to a lot of guys yeah. as, as they've tried to balance this most delicate area of their lives. So I am a 38 year scarred veteran of marriage, <laughs> right? So, so I'm, I'm Not with scars you. from Devin. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> Self-inflicted. In fact, let me explain that okay. specifically. So, so the, the quick story is married 38 years. We've, we've got three grown daughters seven grandkids, um, and when I was in that last transition 16 years ago, I nobly and innocently went to Devaney, my dear wife, and I said, hey, I got an idea. Let's get involved in helping other marriages together through our church, and, and she was kind of underwhelmed with that idea, which was really setting me back, right? It's like, well, okay, what, what's this all about? And finally, she grudgingly agrees. 
And then the church has the audacity to suggest that we go through a 13-week workshop. To, to prepare for this. Yeah, that's right. To, to, to prepare and, and, you know, they wouldn't say it, but to determine if we're healthy enough to help other marriages. So we say, sure, that's a piece of cake. So we go through in about week three, Devaney says to the rest of our table and the leader couple, hey, is it possible our marriage could get worse as opposed to better? And she's got tears in her eyes. And, oh, man. And we're starting to unpack now the first 22 years of our marriage. And what, you, what I haven't said and, and should also confess is I'm the type A workaholic, never met a job I didn't like, work way too hard overzealously and, and underinvested in what you mentioned a minute ago, which is the relationships that are most critical in our lives. And she had a lot of disdain for that. Well, mm. the, the reality is as we were unpacking this whole thing, I've got just as much disdain for her disdain, right? Because I'm saying, well, wait a minute. I, you think I do this for my health? You, yeah, is this, this isn't just for fun. I'm, I'm doing this for the girls and for you. And, and, uh, and the reality is a lot of that was my pride and my ego. And, um, and that's, so, and, but that's not unusual, right? You, you and I both know. Extremely common. Right, we walk with all kinds of friends and colleagues and people we've dealt with forever kind of who wrestle with this right. how do I get this right how, you know you asked the specific question why is marriage so hard I that was one of the things that was confounding to me because in reality I if I look back and I say how do I do relationally with most of the people in my neighborhood and business and church and all these different environments soccer parents or whatever the environments might be I do pretty good. I get along with most everybody I come in contact with. And the confounding part is the one relationship I struggled with probably more than anybody was this woman I love the most and I care about more than anybody and I spend more time with. And it's not because Devaney is broken. It's not because there's anything wrong with her, but it made forced me to struggle with what's the difference. And, and the bottom line is the difference is Every other relationship in my life sees the best of Peter. Mm -hmm. it, it, they see the 70% of the equation that I'm a pretty good guy most sure. of the time, right? Yeah. And, and, and you are too, right? We, at and least we can convince people that's of that, right? right? That's right. <laughs> and, that, and marriage is different because they know the rest of the 30%. That's right. And, and, and there, there is, if you want the root code, we can talk about a lot of branches to this equation, but that's where marriage starts to take on a a, a, a strategic value and a power in our lives that um, I just think confounds a lot of us. Well, it's it's unnerving because we're we're exposed That's at right. the deepest level. Well they, said. They know who we are. They know how we act behind closed doors. That's they it. know the real us. They know how to punch our buttons. All of that is a part of it. But I think too, let me just throw this out for consideration. Yeah. Don't think some of it's kind of. It's a misleading by society to make us believe that if you find your soulmate, That's it. that it'll be easy. You bet. And I, I go back to Jerry Maguire. You know, the, that's that romantic scene. You yeah. know, where where she says through teary eyes, you know, or he says through teary eyes to her, "You complete me." Yeah, there you go. And there's this idea that there's someone out there somewhere that if they just come into my life, they'll magically make me whole and make me complete and I'll right. never have any longings, I'll never experience any loss and it'll be 
really simple. Perfect. They'll be able to read my mind, they'll know what I want, and they'll be there to meet my every need. And it's such a fallacy. It is. I, I agree with you. In fact, it works really well during the dating phase and, and maybe even in the honeymoon, maybe even in the first year. And, and then all of a sudden that luster kind of yeah. comes off. And that's one of, the, one of my favorite author, authors on this topic is a guy named Paul David Tripp. And he wrote a book that's just has a great title. And it says, you can, you can read the sarcasm in the title. What did you expect, right? <laughs> and his whole point yeah. of the book is take two innately selfish, self-oriented, self-reliant people, put them together, make them believe that life is fair and that this is just a matter of being together and, and making things equitable, and then find out how quickly you figure out life ain't fair. And yeah. by the way, that other person I'm married to who was really, really good at courting me and, and pursuing me and all those things, all of a sudden has a selfish kind of side to him. What, what do you expect? Well, but in the hard thing, sometimes for us as men, is when we hear that we're, you know, somebody confronts us with the idea that we're selfish, our immediate reaction is get defensive. No, I'm not. <laughs> Look at all I do for you. Right. But the reality is we all have preferences. We all have opinions. We all have needs that we want to have met. And our tendency is to come to the other person asking them to meet our needs right. as approaching. It's almost like in career transition. Don't come seeking to find something that someone else can do for you. Right. What is it that you can bring to the table to enhance that relationship, to help your spouse thrive? What can you bring? But don't you think that a lot of guys are unnerved by that and so they retreat? and they settle for mediocre when they would never settle for mediocre in their job. <laughs> right. They would never settle for mediocre in their sports pursuits, but yet they settle for mediocre in their marriage. Yeah, there's no doubt you're right, Randy. And as I kind of analyze why that happens, when that happens, and how that happens, I think there's a rationalization that occurs. Hmm. And, and the way it sounds probably is something like this. Well, at least our marriage is better than Billy and Jane. The couple down right? the street that right. got a divorce. That's right, right. <laughs> At least we don't fight nearly as much as those two do. Or, you know, we seem happier than our brother and sister-in-law. And, you know, so you can kind of play these games. My, one of my favorite examples of this is I was at a, a weekend uh, retreat and, and I was leading a, a table group with a bunch of guys. And, and in my normal provocative way, I, I said to these guys at the table, there were six of them, I said, you know, I have a guess, an educated guess, that just about every marriage around this table is probably pretty mediocre. Wow. Now, now it was crickets. <laughs> I in, can in imagine. The, right? I mean, these yeah. guys looked at me like, well, well, you jerk, right? I mean, <laughs> what gives you the right? So, all right, well, that didn't work very well, and we go on and it ends up being a great weekend. A year later, I see one of these guys and he runs across the room, wherever we were, and he says, Peter, we need to talk. And I said, okay, how about now? And he says, okay, well, last year, remember you said you have a mediocre marriage? Well, I was angry, and I went home that Sunday, and I told my wife what you said. And you know what she said? He's right. And, and we held, hand that, held hands that day. And, he's, and, he's, and now Steve's got tears in his eyes. And he says, 
we committed to ourselves that day that, that we were not going to have a mediocre marriage anymore. Mm. And that's, to me, the kind of the epitome of you don't even realize because we rationalize that, that the kind of we've become stale and we're just kind of roommates and we're not really vulnerable and transparent with each other. And maybe we are fighting more than we should. And we don't, we aren't really intimate very often. And, and, well, at least it's better than, right? So, so that's to me, the long winded view of how um, important this topic is. Yeah. Well, and I think that for guys, we, we do rationalize it. We, we have those compartmentalized boxes that we live in, right? And we have this, we can, we can shove those things that aren't pleasant into right. that box and forget them. Whereas women are much more fluid and things, the, the interconnectivity between the two hemispheres is much more lively than ours. <laughs> yes. I think we're just brain dead because of that testosterone yeah. washing the womb, whatever it happened. <laughs> but, but for us, you know, you make an interesting statement I want to challenge you on or at least ask you about. Good. I've heard you say before that, that confrontation is often a way a woman seeks to connect. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Well, it, it, there's actually been studies done on that. There's several authors that write about it. Let's go back and say, why do men confront, right? Men were, were taught on the playground that, that when you have a skirmish and you confront, you're confronting to confront. Right. Because we got something to solve. Let's take it out back. <laughs> Let's go figure that thing out. Yeah. What, what the psychologists will tell you as they study marriage and relationships and men and women is that very often, and I find this with Devaney, she'll ask me a question and my first reaction is to read it and perceive it as a challenge, as a confrontation, as a, you, you're, you're obviously not satisfied with something that I'm doing or, or the way I dealt with the dishes in the dishwasher or whatever it may be. In reality, and she's told me this for years, I just never believed it until I saw the, the, the studies, is that when she asks me the question, she's genuinely trying to have just a conversation and to understand. And, mm. and, 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 I, and you, what it forces you to do, Randy, I think for all of us is, is to kind of put our pride and our skepticism away. And you know, again, another, another favorite headline I love is, assume the best mm. about our spouse as opposed to the worst. And both men and women do this, right? We, we, we get a question, we get a, a statement, we, you know, they, they, whatever it happens, right? And what's the first thing that happens in your mind? Okay, she must think I'm derelict. Go to a negative place. In, that's right. In some way, yeah. I can't believe she's so harsh. Why doesn't she see the good things as opposed to the bad? It's like Devaney's disdain for my workaholism. Why mm. couldn't she look at that as being noble, right? And, and for her benefit. Well, in reality, we got work to do, right? And so, so I, do, I do think there's a lot to this notion of the way men are built and women are built, and we just have to change our paradigm. Yeah. Do you think something has to do with the male ego, protecting and promoting? Big time. Yeah. I, I, I really think if, if you kind of narrow down to the short list of things that really do get in the way, pride, probably on both sides, but, but I'll, I'll point to the men because I... I have a lot less credibility with women than, than I do with the men, even though I have nine sisters and, and three daughters and, and a female dog. Um, I'll say to the guys, you and I, pride is powerful and pride is, is dominating and it tends to prevent us from mm. hearing in, in the right ways and, and, and it causes us to overreact in some ways and, and I really do think that's one of the cool things about marriages is when we figure that out, 
and, and it kind of begs the question, well, what's this all about? Why should marriage be so hard? Shouldn't it be the simplest relationship in the world? Well, I really believe that marriage is designed to make us better people. Yeah. And, uh, and if that means we're less prideful and more humble, this is your book. Where, where else does that translate to? Parenting, work, colleagues, friends. Absolutely. Right? And, and we've just become mo better people beyond the marriage. And that's the greatest asset. So what advice would you give to someone who is struggling in their marriage right now, they want to make it better. Let's get practical. What would you encourage them to do? Some steps they could take to enhance their marriage relationship. Uh, great question, Randy. I, I, maybe I'll start with with a primary one, which is there's a tendency to get the defeatist kind of attitude and resign to the fact that, <clears throat> hey, we've been married 25 years. We aren't going to change. Mm. It isn't going to get better. Um, at least, right, again, that rationalization, at yeah. least, whatever, fill in the blanks, right? And, and I would say that, that because so many marriages are mediocre or less, that maybe job one is to recognize that it can get better. And I actually think, I'll, I'll, go, I'll be so bold as to say, it will get better. And let me add one very encouraging addition. And that is to say that I'm also of the belief that, that, it, that if you're resigned to the notion that both of us have to come together and decide that we have a problem and then proactively work together to figure out how to fix it, unfortunately, that's harder and, and easier said than done. And I have enough evidence now that when one spouse literally decides, you know what? I'm not going to worry about whether both of us are ready to make it better. I, I'm just going to literally take the first step. And I'm going to begin to determine what am I doing and, and how can we get better connected and how can we communicate better and how can we spend more time. Whatever those things are that are in our way, if one spouse takes that step, what's fascinating to me is the other spouse is likely to be profoundly impacted hmm. by that journey. And, and there's where the hope is. Now, I'll also tell you that when one spouse checks out and decides, you know what, it's, it's futile and, and we aren't gonna make it, it isn't gonna get better and, and kind of withdraws or whatever those behaviors are, that other spouse is also gonna be profoundly impacted on the negative side. Hmm. So your call, right, your choice, you, you can either watch that thing go in the toilet and, and kind of do the downward cycle, or you can watch and be a part of it going the other direction. You know, so often when people talk about marriage, you hear them say things like it takes two to tango or, or it's a 50-50 proposition, all those things that just really are not true. Because what you're saying is it only requires one person who has a commitment to making it better. So if you've got somebody in a relationship and they say, well, you just don't know my spouse, they're not receptive, they're so difficult, they, this wouldn't work. It, no matter what I do, it's not gonna change the situation. What would you say to them? Honestly, it may not. That The reality is, I don't wanna be Pollyanna, Randy, you and I both know, right? It may not change. But, but, the, but here's the, again, the encouragement I'd provide is, 
how's it working for you today? It's kind of the Dr. Phil question, yeah. right? How's that working for you, right? If it's, if it's not working well today and you're resigned, that's a terrible alternative, right? So I got an idea. Why don't you take a step and, and make the conviction, knowing that your spouse may not respond? I'm willing to bet that there's a high probability that when you take the mature approach and you really do invest in the relationship and you become the man or the woman that, that you're designed to be, that I'm willing to place a bet that your spouse is going to be profoundly impacted in a positive way. And if they're not and if they don't, two things are going to happen. You're going to become a better person yeah. and you're also going to be a heck of a lot happier. Well, and when you become the person that you need to be, that's it. Regardless of the response, you then become much more attractive that's because it. you're you're finally getting to the place that you needed to be all along. And that's quite honestly, when I say their your spouse will respond, when they start noticing, you know, it's amazing he hasn't been overreacting. And it's not, yeah, and it's not right. because of anything that I'm giving right. him. It's right. Like, so what's going on? That's right. It, it's there's not some manipulation. There isn't a and then goal, he doesn't it's seem to be. It's not a quid pro quo. It's not what am I going to get back from this right. in return. And, 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 and that's what I, I, I can tell you. There's multiple authors who have written on this topic that when one person kind of walks that journey that mm -hmm. says, I'm, I'm going to not be a 50-50 person. I'm going to serve my spouse in an extraordinary way because that's the nature of the covenant of our relationship. Then that other spouse cannot look there in most cases and say, well, that's great. I'm just going to sit here and abuse the, their generosity. Yeah. I, it's just almost impossible for the, for the average person to do that. Well, well, serving your spouse in an extraordinary way means that you know them. You become a student of your spouse. That's it. And I'll never forget, uh, I know you're well-versed in the five languages of love. Yes. But when I first realized that my language of love was vastly different than Luann's language of love, Absolutely. it was eye-opening. Yeah. Because I, I'm a guy that loves words of affirmation. <clears throat> words of affirmation and physical touch. You're a, you're a good guy, touch. by the way. Yeah, yeah. thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> Makes me feel really good. No, thank you. <clears throat> words of affirmation will go a long way in, in making me feel confident and, and right. able to step out and, and, and charge whatever Take challenges. Take on the world. Exactly, right. whatever challenges in front of me. And then the physical touch. I just like to be close and hug. I was born and raised in a huggy family and right. spent a lot of time in South Florida and just the the Cuban culture, embracing one another and kiss. I mean, that's just, it just makes me feel good. It fills my tank. Sure. Luann's is acts of service. There you go. And so for her, she's got her list, my list, their list, and all of our lists. That's right. Because for her, the way she demonstrates love is she takes care of the family. Ah, excellent. I mean, she does incredible acts of service and sacrifice, but we all tend to want others to speak in our language right. of love. Until I understood that, I didn't get the fact that the best thing I can do for her is to make sure the oil is changed on the car, to do the dishes whenever right. humanly possible, to pitch in and help around the house. Those things that to her are statements of love. Right. I was trying to fill her emotional tank by giving her words of affirmation and building her up and one day she looked at me and goes, why, why, why are you saying all that stuff? I don't need to hear that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Would you please? Good. Just, yeah. Would you just please pick your socks off <laughs> yeah, the floor? Right. You know, right. Like, or, or clean up the leaves yeah, or whatever. Whatever, it may the, be, right? whatever the chore of the day was. Right. Chore. Chore du jour. Yeah. Yeah. 
But she, she it understands love when I speak it through acts of service. And so I've had to learn how to speak her language, and then she's had to learn how to speak my language as well. We have to meet each other there. But I think becoming a student of your spouse is critically important in all that. But talk to me about the role of intentionality. I mean, how do you, you have to pursue this with a plan and a purpose. That's right. It, it, it won't happen by accident. And there, it's, it's a little bit like the business analogy, Randy. A business won't thrive and won't grow if, if you try to stay the course, if you stay the same, right? It, it, it'll either die, it'll either grow or die, right? Mm -hmm. And I think relationships have a similar parallel. If you don't invest in your marriage, if you aren't intentional, if you aren't doing date nights, if you aren't periodically going away and spending a weekend with your spouse and talking about things beyond the practical operational details of how we're raising our family, your relationship will atrophy. And, and if you want to know where the epidemic is of divorce today, it really is in the 30-year-plus marriages, hmm. which you'd say to yourself, well, that's crazy. How can... If they made it that far, surely they're right. going to make it to the end. And the reality is, again, we, we worked on everything other than our marriage, yeah. right? Our careers, our uh, children, getting them through college, saving enough for retirement, and all these wonderful things. And then you get around when the last kid's gone off and you're around the dinner table for five nights in a row and you figure out that the first five minutes were fine like how was your day oh fine and how we right now we got nothing to talk about that's where you start to see the evidence that the apathy and and the um you know the, the lack of investment right the atrophy starts to occur yeah. and um and it's just a shame because you can't Fix, it's harder to fix that 30 years than it is to start making that investment at three and five and 10. Agreed. So final words of encouragement. What would you say to the busy person? I mean, and all these principles apply for women as well as they do for men. But is there any last word of encouragement that you would provide for couples that right now may be struggling or they may find or willing to admit that they're in a mediocre marriage and, and they do want to make it better? Any other final thoughts? Yeah, the encouragement I would, I would provide is you, you don't know and you haven't experienced what you're missing. And so when you're in, a, in that kind of middle of your marriage journey and you're kind of rationalized and you're thinking it's about as good as it's ever going to get, and it's a little bit like the frog in the pot of boiling water or you know, warm and then boiling and you don't even know how hot it is until it kills you, is... is um, when you go through this process and you intentionally invest in your marriage, you, you just won't even realize how deep and how special the nature of that relationship can be. And the biggest beneficiary of that is not only you and your spouse, it's your children. Mm. Because the best gift we can give our kids is a, just a, an unbelievably deep and rich marriage. And you've modeled that now for them for the balance of their life and uh and that's a gift yeah i mean i Devaney and i've been through 38 years i um i've never loved her to the degree and to the depth that i do today yeah. or desired her as much as i do so i that's my encouragement I to anybody that. who might listen and to add on to that it's never too late to start i agree entirely
never too late to start. No matter how much water's under the bridge, no matter what the past has been, the future can be bright with intentionality and focus and working on it. Don't settle for mediocre. Amen. Yeah, Amen. Thank that's you. That's great stuff. Well, hey, we're not even close to being through. We've got so much more to talk about, but I'm going to have you back. I want to talk more about this whole idea of sell strategy and unselling. I also want us to spend some more time talking about transition when it comes to careers sure. and helping people with that. But today, this has been great. Great content on helping us focus on that relational side of the most important piece, and that's with our spouse because what we learn in the context of our homework is going to translate effectively into the marketplace and with our team leadership as well. So, Peter, great insights. Thanks for the time, man. Thank you, it Randy. It is always good hanging out with you. You too. Thanks, buddy. Take care.